This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. You, Professor David Martin. Athena, it's especially nice to be looked after by you on this daunting occasion. It's a great honour to be to be here and give the Ernest Gunn Memorial Lecture. Um, it's just half my lifetime since I gave my LSE inaugural lecture. 41 years later, it is a surprising honor and a daunting responsibility to give the Ernest Gellner Memorial Lecture. And the more daunting because my intellectual troops are thinly spread over several fronts, which is why I'm not sorry there are no questions afterwards. I am looking, as Athena said, at three major contemporary transformations. The ethno-religious revolutions of 1989, the global upsurge of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, and the Islamist revival in the so-called Arab Spring. I'm going to ask whether nationalism is still the main game in town, especially, especially in view of transnational expressions of religion, even in 1989, but more obviously in transnational evangelicalism and Islamism, and in the personal and global imaginations of young people with access to the internet. I also keep in play a complicated dialectic between the individual and pluralistic and the collective and exclusive. Nationalism is not my field, but with Anthony Smith, Adrian Hastings, Stephen Grosby, and Athar Gatt, I regard national self-awareness as having a longer history than some modernist approaches might allow. In Anthar Gatt, a critique of modernism appealing to evolutionary psychology is clearly underway, explaining inter alia why religion is so often aligned with consciousness of kin and kind, and what, what Edmund Burke called the platoon into which we are born. Yet I was close to Ernest Gellner for several years from 1962 on, and I gained gained more from his writing than from any other. Ernest Gellner ensured the first draft of my A General Theory of Secularization was published in the European Journal of Sociology in December 1969. And decades later, I acknowledged these debts by arguing he should receive a separate entry in the Encyclopedia of the Social and Behavioral Sciences with people who perhaps found him too protean for inclusion. I knew him as the iconoclast of words and things and thought and change, not 
as the preeminent theorist of nationalism, though his ideas on nationalism were already present in thought and change. I shall have more to say about Ernest Gellner as I proceed. My initial interest in nationalism was limited to my work on pacifism. And that was because Christian and secular pacifists alike blamed nationalism for encouraging violence. But then, as I set about devising a strictly delimited general theory of secularization, I had to assess the role played by nationalism in secularization alongside the Enlightenment and alongside revolutionary political ideology. So I have first, first, to dispose of the secularization issue if my topic is to be other than merely historical. In the general theory, I integrated empirical tendencies and in belief and practice with different national histories, different kinds of enlightenment, different likelihoods of political revolution, and different types of Christianity. The vitality of religion in modernity depended on whether it acted as a benign midwife at the birth of the nation, as in Poland and Ireland, or a malign fairy, as in France and Italy. It depended on whether certain versions of Christianity were partially aligned with versions of the Enlightenment, as in Protestant England, Scotland, the USA, Canada, Switzerland, and Germany, or at odds, as in Catholic France and Italy. It also depended on whether there were non-revolutionary potentials for change, as in England, North America, and Germany, or whether there was outright war between clerical reaction and a historicized and revolutionary version of Enlightenment, Marxism, as in much of Catholic and Orthodox Europe. I saw morphological similarities between Christianity and nationalism, Christianity and enlightenment, Christianity and revolutionary ideology. In particular, I canvassed romantic messianism as analyzed by Jacob Talmon. I explored the clash between the children of darkness and the children of light, the shared inheritance of forerunners, martyrs and heroes, vanguards and avant-garde, ages and stages, rituals and icons, holy lands and universal cities, realized eschatology and canonical texts. My prime focus was the different outcomes of the relationship of religion with nationalism, with enlightenment and with revolutionary political ideology. So, what were those outcomes? Nationalism remained pervasive in the USA and Russia 
and even in contemporary Europe, but the outcomes for religion were very different. In the USA, the secularization of the state and pluralism taken together secured the autonomy and vitality of religion. In England and Northern Protestant Europe, religious establishment became associated with a passive religiosity that could succumb to passive secularity. In Catholic and Orthodox Europe, religion held up somewhat better in spite of a higher degree of conflict. France is exceptional. In France, a secularism that combined political revolution and nationalism tried to confine religion to the private sphere. And in Turkey, Russia, China, and Ethiopia, other variants of revolutionary nationalist secularism launched assaults on religion, mostly unsuccessful. If religion had morphed into nationalism without significant remainder, we would only be discussing a transition. It would be a historical question. And here I agree with Slavika Jakovic that religion has for many centuries provided boundaries and narratives based on ascribed identity over against religious others. With the emergence of modern nationalism, there are cases for example, Hungary and Slovenia, where religion became less salient than language. But religion, religious faith does not cease to offer individual and universal salvation. If the Enlightenment had triumphed, we would now be safely lodged in the age of reason. We are not, asked John Gray. If religion were merely an alienated sign of our aspiration for a new earth and a new man, then religion would have morphed into the ever-glorious political revolution. 1989 said goodbye to all that. The revolutions my Marxist colleagues expected did not happen, while those none of us expected did. Hence, a little book I wrote entitled Forbidden Revolutions, comparing the forbidden evangelical revolution in the global south, notably that in America, with the forbidden revolutions of 1989. And this is where I disagreed with Ernest Gellner. Like many intellectuals, enlightened liberals and Marxists alike, he saw a chasm between the past and industrial modernity, and religion lay in the past. Later in Postmodernism, Reason and Religion, Ernest Gellner saw Islam as a singular exception to the outmoded status of religion because in its high cultural form, it was rational and egalitarian rather than magical, ritualistic, and priestly. 
In public discussion with me in Vienna in 1993, he even rejected the idea that the thoroughly modern religiosity of the USA was exceptional. As for the Christian Revolution now approaching and spreading all over the developing world, I see it as what Eisenstadt would understand as a version of multiple modernity. But Ernest would not have been impressed. Pentecostalism might be lay and egalitarian, but its fusion of emotional black revivalism with white revivalism and its union of ancient and modern spiritism would rule it out. Even scholars who believe in multiple modernities suspect the credentials of Pentecostalism. And yet, of course, Ernest Gellner can be turned upside down. For Peter Berger and Grace Davy, secular <coughs> Europe is the odd one out, not revivalist Islam. It is Europe's singularity and Europe's blind spot to associate real modernity with secularity, to associate secularity with democracy, and to treat secularization as what the anthropologist Webb King would call a project of purification along the lines of Protestant iconoclasm. Ernest Gellner, as a liberal utilitarian, took the passive secularity of Northwestern Europe for granted. For my part, I have always been dubious about secularization as a homogenous process leading to a future presaged by France or Sweden. And now, I'm dubious about claims that God is back, merely because we consider religion a problem. The French model of secularization misleads us um, about the privatization of religion if we are talking about a recognized contribution of religion to debate in the public square. Throughout the post-war period, the major force in European politics was Christian democracy. But what we do have, what we do have is the triumph of personal choice and inwardness in Western Europe, Canada, and the USA as part of a Protestant genealogy that reaches back to Jeremiah and Jesus, Paul and Augustine, Luther and Wesley. In Western Europe and Canada, with their real or shadow religious establishments, that means passive dissociation from religion. In the USA, it means active association, except where social capital has been eroded as identified by Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone. So let me restate my primary focus in this lecture. I explore the dialectic between the autonomous powers of religion and nationalism and between collective identity and choice in my three revolutionary transformations. 
I am canvassing three contemporary transformations to query how far nationalism remains the main game in town in the light of major transnational religious movements and in the light of the transnational and personal imaginaries of young people with access to the internet. Now, the revolutions of 1989 look like evidence for the resilience of ethno-religion as a vehicle of collective identity, although there were also major outcrops of inner conscientious dissent at work in combination with transnational religious influences, notably the Catholic Church. Evangelical Christianity in the Global South looks like <coughs> personal choice and a collective transnational identity on a collision course with nationalism, including nationalist religion, that's to say the Catholic Church in Latin America and in Africa and Asia, the nationalist constructions and post-colonial mobilizations of intellectual and political elites. At the same time, there have been intermittent alliances between evangelicalism and nationalism. As for the Arab revolutions, it depends who is doing the looking. Some see those revolutions as nationalism disguised, others as religion taking over from nationalism as the vehicle of collective identity, though with a significant margin of pluralism, inwardness, and maybe even choice. My sequence of discussion is as follows. I begin with the mingling of motifs in Christianity and nascent, nascent nationalism over the last half millennium without Christianity being secularized by nationalism. That requires some engagement with the role of elites in promoting nationalism, and it focuses on the ethno-religious transformations in Eastern Europe up to and after 1989. That's one. I shall continue with the emergence of the voluntary principle and pluralism and lay participation from the womb of Protestant national churches and show how that is realized in today's global evangelicalism and transnational Pentecostalism. This is a massive cultural revolution from the bottom up, taking off in Latin America and spreading to Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. In the Protestant universe, the relationship of religion to nationalism morphs into a further relationship between faith and individual experience and conscience. Finally, I shall ask how far these shifts have occurred in Islam. That means drawing out the difference between ethno-religion in Central and Eastern Europe struggling against a secularist and communist imperialism and Islamic movements in the Arab world struggling against oppressive nationalist movements that imposed Western secularism 
and colluded with Western interests. Cairo is not Prague. It means exploring the difference between the chosen faith of evangelical Christians in the two-thirds world and what may be an emerging element of choice or at any rate pluralism in the Arab world. Pentecostalism and Islamism run in parallel but are profoundly different. That exploration includes the very conscious embrace of some form of Islamism and of a semi-secular self-determination among large swathes of alienated young people. Olivier Roy even suggests that Islam might follow Christianity in gradually hiving off from the broader, cult broader culture and becoming a highly personal faith, leaving passive secularity to occupy the space of the social sacred. Subhead, the transformations of 1989. What of the dialectic between Christianity and nationalism so apparently evident in 1989 before I come to the dialectic of personal choice and collective national identity so evident in global evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. For over half a millennium, we observe a complicated mutuality between religion and nationhood and nationalism. Consider John Wycliffe, progenitor of the Reformation, in the early 1380s, at the same time as English-speaking English people rose in the Great Revolt of 1381. Wycliffe sought to put an English Bible before them so that they might hear the word for themselves, and he proposed a choice between Edward of England and Urban of Rome. Consider John Milton in his Areopagitica, published in 1644, Milton apostrophized a noble and puissant English nation, and he understood the role of print in creating, a unified cult creating the unified cultural construct of the nation. He also lived at a time when Protestant faith in the perspicuity of scripture led to any number of jostling interpretations an open Bible was always likely to favour pluralism and faith as personal choice. So we have personal choice and national identity working together but potentially at odds, particularly with the development of the idea of the non-conforming conscience and the secular extensions of that traced by Melvin Victor in the politics of conscience. I was going to take an example, a further example from George Fiddick Handel, but I'm going to drop it because I can see the time is moving. I identify a dialectic of the collective, whether religious or national, nationalist or ethno-religious and religious inwardness that can be traced throughout European history. In the 15th century, there was an association between the proto-Protestant Hussite movement and incipient Czech nationalism, which is still alive in Czech, Czech mythology. 
In Hungary, a country which fits Gellner's model of linguistic homogenization as a criterion for membership in the nation, the national myth was associated with Protestantism. In Germany, Luther is an icon of the Protestant individual standing up to Pope and Emperor and of the Germanic nation and language. We come now to the mutuality of nationalism and religion as expressed in 1989. 1989 did not straightforwardly herald the arrival of democracy as recent trends in Hungary, Romania, Moldova and Ukraine indicate. As communism and the Soviet empire broke up, the roles played by religious nationalism and cultural nationalism varied from country to country. Although there was clearly a moment from Lithuania to East Germany to Ukraine when the movement for national liberation processed into the public arena behind the banners of religion. These banners were simultaneously representations in the public square of the universal church and manifestations of the individual conscience. Jan Palak's self-immolation in Wenceslas Square in 1969 looked back to the burning of Jan Hus and inspired other such acts in Prague and Budapest. Catholicism, especially in its union form in Romania and Ukraine, was persecuted precisely for its trans-nationalism. Of course, after 1989, religion was sometimes compromised by entering into politics and seeking old positions of power and wealth, as in Russia. In Poland, nation and faith were coincident and resistance much influenced by the election of a transnational Polish Pope and by Catholic leadership of solidarity. In Serbia, the Church adopted a hyper-nationalistic attitude based on the role of Serbia as a victim nation and the threat to the sacred pilgrimage sites of Kosovo. In Romania, the Orthodox Church remains central to national identity even though the hierarchy was suborned by the communist state and the initial thrust of revolt led by a Hungarian Protestant pastor associated with Hungarian nationalism. Religion was also influential in Ukraine, Slovakia, Croatia, East Germany and Lithuania as well as in Georgia, Armenia and the Muslim republics of the Caucasus. In Ukraine, Union Catholics and Ukrainian Orthodox looked to the West and provided the core of the movement for national independence, while the Orthodox of the Moscow Patriarchate looked more to Russia. In East Germany, however, which is arguably the crucial case because that is where the wall came down, we have something rather different. The old association of Lutheranism with nationalism had been discredited by, discredited by the Nazi period and the Lutheran Church very severely weakened by state secularization. Nevertheless, as the official stamp of the, DD, the, official stamp of the DDR 
uh, which, is, um, which advertises this lecture. As that stamp reminds us, it provided the sacred space for Nikolai Kirsch in Leipzig, out of which vast crowds of people sallied forth to confront and to overthrow the regime. The movement in East Germany was nurtured in Christian cadres focused on peace and the environment. In Estonia, Latvia, Czech lands and Slovenia, cultural nationalism was more evident than religion. In these countries, religion had associations with German cultural superiority, which meant it could be severely weakened under communist pressure and the potential for change carried by culture. In Slovenia, language was more important than religion, and in Bulgaria, religion took the form of attachment to the land, as well as strictly to orthodoxy. In Hungary, there were various forces of revolt, some more nationalist, historical and linguistic, some more associated with Catholicism. And yet, there was also much evidence for the transnational status and autonomy of religion in Protestant ecumenism, in pan-Orthodox solidarities, and in Catholicism, as well as personal protests at a compromised official church and the state. For example, Father Alexander Men in Moscow, Thomas Harlick and other associates of Vaclav Havel in Prague. There were transnational charismatic movements of many different kinds, to be found among the Transylvanian camp Calvinists and Baptists, the Lord's Army in Romania, the monasteries of the Ukraine, Ukrainian units, and a remarkably successful Pentecostal megachurch in Kiev, led by a Nigerian. So, and now come to the global evangelical Pentecostal transformation. Turning to the global expansion of evangelical Christianity, I outline how choice and pluralism were fostered by evangelicalism, even though checked after the Reformation by the church state and then the church nation, and although counterbalanced wherever evangelicalism became the accepted faith of the majority. After Westphalia, there's a complicated dance between Protestantism as a faith based on choice and nationalism as an ideology based on birthright identity. Because once a religion based on choice becomes the faith of a majority, as it did in pietist Scandinavia, New England, Northern Ireland, Victorian Britain, it confers birthright identity. Baptists stand for the separation of church and state but in the American South, they are an established and often nationalistic religion. Nevertheless, a faith which promotes an open Bible and expects a crisis of conversion to be resolved by mature commitment is a religion of choice. Its expansion all over the two-thirds world represents the global expansion of a vociferous transnational egalitarianism of the spirit, lighting on whom it will, vigorous popular leadership, lay organization, self-education, personal commitment, individualization, and interiority. 
the subversion of the state national churches of the Reformation began with the inwardness of pietism associated with places like Hanhut and Halle. It continued when evangelical revivals and awakenings broke away from the state church in Britain and spawned the universal voluntarism of the United States. But then, voluntary religion became an inheritance by birth, just as it was in Victorian England, and American evangelicalism forged a strong tie with American nationalism. So voluntarism stepped westward from Germany to England and from England to America, till it came to fruition in Los Angeles in 1906, when white and black revivalism fused in Pentecostalism. A transnational faith emerged, capable of crossing any number of cultural species barriers, from Brazil to the Philippines, and from Ghana to South Korea. But of course, nothing prevents global evangelicalism once again forging intermittent alliances with nationalism virtually anywhere in the developing world, from South Korea to Zambia. Nationalism, like enlightenment and radical political revolution, was fostered by elites. The evangelical transformation comes from below and is so peaceful, many people have no idea how fast it moves. In Brazil, there are now some 40 million Protestants, a threefold increase in 30 years. By comparison, the parallel movement of the Catholic-based communities was under the aegis of a hegemonic church, and therefore more sophisticated and less popular. Pentecostalism was propagated by buccaneering religious entrepreneurs like Amy McPherson, drawn from what I call a buried intelligentsia. Its leaders trained on the job and spoke the language of the people. More upmarket versions of Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity appealed to the rapidly expanding middle classes all over South and Central America. Many of them organized in megachurches and inclined to prosperity theology. In Guatemala, Pentecostal and Evangelical Christians number over 25% of the population and appeal equally to the large Mayan minority and to the middle classes of Guatemala City. Popular Pentecostalism is often dismissed by, they're often dismissed as inauthentic by nationalist elites when compared with spiritist movements like Condomble or revivals of pre-Columbian practices. Pentecostals can be derided as American stooges, but in their own eyes they've gone over the head of contemptuous local hierarchies to enjoy a transnational modernity for which America often acts as a universal lodestar. Pentecostals are as much creations of the communications revolution as the young protesters of Tahrir Square, and they are conspicuous virtuosi in their use of contemporary media. They are global and local, rapidly indigenizing and easily linking up, linking up with global modernization. They represent a clash between a global voluntarism and various forms of cultural nationalism, 
including the cultural nationalism of established Catholicism in Latin America. Pentecostals are not only criticized for uh, preempting the natural constituency of the base communities, but for eroding the cultural authenticity of indigenous peoples like the Maya and the Aymara. For their part, Pentecostals believe they have given up semi-paganism for the authentic New Testament, speaking in tongues, exorcism, divine healing. But from a very different viewpoint, Pentecostals in Latin America, Africa and Asia are criticized for reviving ancient spirit cults in modern guise. In Uganda and Zimbabwe and in South Korea, the Pentecostal fusion of ancient and modern spiritism can seem more attractively authentic than the sober worship of the mainstream churches. The Catholic Church and other mainstream churches in Africa are major agents, agents of modernization and cultural modification and challenge corrupt political elites whereas Pentecostalism resonates with an enchanted spirituality and can itself become corpus, corporate, corporatist and clientelistic, reflecting local traditions of big men and big women. It incorporates local traditions as well as rupturing them through conversion. From Accra to Manila, its success has helped stimulate major charismatic movements in the mainstream churches. Expanded definitions even allow some sources to claim a global constituency of over half a billion people. But of course, post-colonial nationalism is a powerful force, and the mainstream churches accommodate it by conscious acculturation. So, in the immediate post-colonial period, attention focused on the African independent churches as authentic expressions of African culture rather than on Pentecostal churches. At the same time, Pentecostal churches shared cultural genes with, AIC, with the African independent churches and can emerge in parallel with African nationalism. You see the complex, complicated dance that's going on. Ezekiel Guti's transnational Pentecostal church, the Zimbabwe Assemblies of God Africa, had its, had its origins in the same part of Harare as Zimbabwean nationalism and has formed intermittent alliances, both Mugabe and the MDC. Pentecostalism most obviously differs from Zimbabwean nationalism in its commitment to non-violence and its pan-African aspirations. Pentecostal churches adapted to Africa as to Latin America. Sometimes evangelical and charismatic churches saw themselves as the authentic carriers of the national tradition, so that in Zambia, for example, political leaders went so far as to declare it a Christian country, in spite of a considerable Muslim minority. For some observers, Pentecostalism adapted all too well to an African interest in the goods associated with the gods and developed a neo-Pentecostal prosperity gospel that drew more on the Hebrew scriptures than the New Testament. 
They were Afro-Jewish, more Zechariah and Joel than Matthew, Luke and John. The prosperity gospel was often promoted in transnational megachurches appealing to the middle class and providing a complete alternative social environment with banks, educational and medical facilities. When Pentecostalism and the charismatic arrival, um, revival arrived in Asia, it faced non-Christian establishments fortified in their resistance by nationalist movements that had fought for independence and against colonialism. Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity found three social niches very like those in Latin America and Africa. Minority ethnic groups, for example in the interior of the Philippines and Borneo, and the Chinese diaspora in Malaysia, Singapore and Indonesia. The poor, for example semi-literate women in China during the Cultural Revolution. The new middle class of business people and specialists in communications technology in China and the Chinese diaspora alike. Protestant Christianity and Chinese culture got along fine. And how fast Pentecostalism and Christianity generally spread depended on whether the local nationalism was receptive or hostile. In mainland China, Taiwan and Japan, nationalism defined Christianity as a foreign import. So it only affects some 4 to 5 percent in China and Taiwan, and in Japan, 2 percent. Nevertheless, there has been a rapid growth recently in China, so that the evangelical community in Wenzhou, a coastal city in a geographical enclave, numbers some 15 percent of a population of 6 million. In South Korea, however, Christianity affects 25% of the population, and in Singapore, 15%. Mega churches like New Creation and City Harvest in Singapore boast over 20,000 members, while some mega churches in South Korea claim memberships in six figures. An expansive Pentecostalism in India and Burma encounters a strong current of ethno-religious nationalism directed at both Muslims and Christians and at the religiously different ethnic minorities. The Philippines is a special case because there is a majority Catholic Church together with American cultural influence and the use of English. English is a major carrier of Pentecostal faith. And charismatic movements have expanded as much inside the Catholic Church, especially in the middle class, as outside it. Nationalist feeling throughout Asia encourages a revival of indigenous religious traditions, such as Confucianism, Buddhism and Taoism. Confucianism experiences a revival among the Chinese intelligentsia, and there are major, major Buddhist revivals in mainland China, South Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan. Moreover, there are major sectors of people who are merely secular in South Korea and Singapore, and in China itself, of course, the ruling Communist Party and its cadres are ideologically secularist. Now I'm going to have move to move with all dispatch, because I've come to the uh, 
Spring. When we come to the Arab Spring, we can dismiss Western media approaches featuring democratic good guys struggling with bad guys. Cairo is not Prague. Instead, I turn to some theses of Olivier Roy that, right or wrong, bear directly on collective identity and choice, though maybe one should say pluralism rather than choice. Roy insists that the initial demonstrators in Tahrir Square were neither nationalists nor Islamists, but members of a demographically multitudinous new generation of individualistic young people in the big cities with access to the internet. This generation disdains charismatic leaders, patriarchy and clientelism. The Arab-Israeli conflict is not central and they are not fanatical partisans of a supranational cause. Yet, in the Tunisian and Egyptian elections, Islamist parties expressing religious values shared by the popular majority triumphed as the only credible parties of government. Islamist parties have no more affection for democracy than the Egyptian army, and they deplore Western, they deplore Western values, pluralism, secularism, and individualism. They affirm religion as central to national identity, and reject the kind of secularism promoted by earlier Arab nationalists. Yet, Roy claims these parties will succumb to internal individualization and to demands for democratic debate, which means we are deluded in imagining, imagining democracy has to be associated with secularization. The Islamists of Tunisia, or even the Salafists of Egypt, could become reluctant agents of a political secularization, not the secularization of society. I'm quoting Roy, and he says, Collective identity and faith are very different. Islam cannot be reconstructed as political ideology, and any attempt to restore Islamic norms by legal regulation is doomed. In part, this is because Salafists declare that only a strict personal return to faith could serve as the basis of an Islamic society. So, following Roy, even among fundamentalists, we find personal choice, conviction, and increasing diversity separated from inherited tradition, traditional authorities, and culture. Religious institutions hive off from the state and there is scant agreement as to what in Islam is non-negotiable. Maybe in time the individual right to choose in religious matters will be accepted, though the response to the emergence of evangelical churches in Morocco and Algeria is hardly encouraging. One major option is the Turkish model of a modern political party trying to attack voters beyond the faithful and adopting vaguely conservative causes like the family, property, honesty, and the work ethic. As for uprooted global jihadists dreaming of a supranational ummah, they are now confined to the peripheries of the Arab world in Somalia, Yemen, Somalia, Yemen and the Sahel. The conflict that matters is not between the West and Islamic terror, but between the conservative Sunni world and the Shia crescent between Saudi Arabia and Iran. If Yoel Goransky and Benedetta Berti are right, 
the initial thrust of democratization has revived religious differences which are dramatized by unrest among the Shiite majority in Bahrain and the Shiite minority in Saudi Arabia. Nevertheless, parliaments are not mosques. Religion turns into an horizon of meaning rather than specific norms, and Muslim conservatives resemble conservative evangelicals in their defense of shared values. For Roy, the separation of religion as personal faith from culture involves the embrace of holy ignorance, uh, which he wrongly sees as, an, as analogous to the spread of Pentecostalism within Christianity. The emergence of numerous individualistic young people, skeptical of both the older kind of Arab nationalism and contemporary Islamism, but accepting Islam as their collective identity raises interesting questions. According to Tariq Ahmed al-Siwi, there has been a transition from the imagined community of Arab nationalism to a subjective imagination derived from innumerable nodes of transnational contact, including migrant bodies and migrating messages. Of course, there are also those who point to polls of Egyptian opinion, showing that whatever the electoral success of Islamists, in practice, nationalism trumps religion. But if El-Siwi is right, these are the same developments that fostered the imagined transnational community of Pentecostalism. They are like and unlike, and this new subjective imagination should not be identified with the deepened religious consciousness illustrated by Francois Bourga in his The Islamic Movement in North Africa through numerous personal biographies. In several contemporary Muslim contexts, for example, Turkey, Malaysia, and Indonesia, religion and associated parties articulate broad values in the public square that may be widely shared outside the faithful. In its most benign version, the public square could, and I stress these uh, imponderables, could become passively secular, according to Lili Rahim. It could even echo constitutional arrangements in Northern Europe, where the sacred is accepted as a public presence, subject to negotiation, provided society is not subject to religious regulation. That suits a faith like Christianity, especially Pentecostalism, based on the spirit rather than the letter of the law. But it could be made compatible with Islam. Whatever the alarming portents of the moment, and I'm very conscious of these, it might be as well to take the longer view and recollect, as Jose Casanova has pointed out, that suspicions of Islam as dangerously illiberal and disloyal to the national state echo suspicions of Catholicism in the 19th century, understandable at the time and as late as the 1930s, but ultimately not justified. Now I find myself having got to half past six and having a certain thoughtfulness about my audience and wondering quite what I should do. What I'm going to say is that um, I have a conclusion, but I'm just hoping that the general outlines of what I've been, I've been trying to say are, are clear, clear enough. And uh, 
my sense is that when I see this arriving at half past six, I should say uh, that I'm going to leave the final issue of passive, the conclusion, and the final issue of passive secularity and passive nationalism. I'm going to leave those out, because I think all, enough is already too much. I can do no other, because time has run out. But I did have a final paragraph which took us back to Ernest Gellner and uh, indicated that, well, there's always a possibility that he was right. So I come to my final paragraph. Maybe Ernest Gellner, as a Jew, was right to regard Protestantism as the modern religion. If so, we can ask whether the vast contemporary expansion of evangelical evangelical Christianity presages the advent of choice as fragmentation and secularization. We can inquire whether the, whether the inundation of Catholic monopoly in Brazil by enthusiastic Protestantism prefigures the expansion of a passive secularity on the European model. In 1904, Wales experienced an evangelical revival that with other global movements fed into the Pentecostal explosion in Los Angeles in 1906. That evangelical revival was part of the modernization of Wales and its spread was greatly assisted by reports in the newspapers, that's to say, the media. The splendid Baptist chapel in Bethesda was a center of revival. It has recently been turned into flats. The area is Welsh-speaking. It's now represented by a Welsh nationalist MP. As elsewhere in Western Europe and Quebec, religion in Wales has been displaced by cultural nationalism, leaving a deposit of passive secularity and a love of singing. When I was in the Yucatan, I noticed that the new Protestant chapels often looked like replicas of chapels in Wales. Indeed, my wife insisted that I included the palm trees in the background in case people thought that he wouldn't believe that these chapels were in the Yucatan. And maybe, maybe Bethesda is a harbinger of things to come elsewhere, that movement from the evangelical revival to the, uh, a chapel turned into flats. Durkheim lies behind Ernest Gellner. Maybe, maybe Durkheim, as a Jew, was not entirely wrong when he linked religion so closely with totems and the expression of a collective consciousness, such as nationalism, rather than with individual experience. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. On behalf of all of us, I thank Professor Fabian Martin for giving us an awesome account of the mutuality between nationalism and religion. Uh, spanning history, universal history, and the whole world. 
Um, the lecture will be published in a forthcoming issue of Nations and Nationalism, so you have the pleasure of um, uh, thinking and uh, revisiting all these wonderful and deep ideas. And I invite you all to come to the reception in the old building uh, straight away. And uh, I know that you're bursting with the questions, and you can ask uh, uh, Professor Martin all your questions <laughs> as, as soon as he recovers. So um, um, our date is, at, uh, is uh, straight away um, the fifth floor of the senior common room. Um, and we'll have a reception and uh, the book launch. But before you go, um, can I just make a little announcement about the conference, so the Asian conference that begins tomorrow, um, Nationalism Revolution. Um, they, um, you can register tomorrow uh, from 8.30 to 9.30 and registration will take place in room 202 in this building. And uh, let us thank again Professor David Martin for giving us such a wonderful lecture.